0: morning. It's so wonderful to see all of you and to be here with you. Even though I know, you know, we're in this series how to grieve, we're probably all grieving the hour of sleep we lost last night. But we'll, we'll get through it together. I, uh, I very clearly remember moving to this, our great city of Chicago, uh, seven years ago to start my uh, undergraduate career. And let me tell you, Freshman Will, he had big dreams. He had real big dreams. He had big dreams for himself, for all that he would do, all that he would go on to accomplish. And I remember stepping out of my parents' minivan in downtown Chicago, and I felt on top of the world. I was living downtown in a major city. I was going to my top choice school. I had a new girlfriend, and uh, I even had a pair of Toms. (laughs) Yeah, you all remember. And in those those Toms, I was going to bring peace and healing single-handedly to an unjust and to a divided city. And I had an an unshakable faith in the Lord. How do you think that that went for me? (laughs) Like, how do you think the rest of this story goes? Well, within a month, my girlfriend broke up with me. My faith was deconstructed by people who Uh, seemed much smarter than me. And I quickly got crushed trying to fix problems and injustices that were just way too complex for an 18-year-old wearing Tom's. Life has a way of stripping us down, doesn't it? It can strip us down in our expectations. Our expectations for who we thought that we would be the kind of job that we thought that we would have, the kind of family we thought that we would have. We expected our life at this point would be more fun, right? Maybe more stable or purposeful than it feels right now in the day to day. It can strip us down in our relationships when we get that call that a loved one has passed away suddenly, or just the turnover of the city, which can leave us constantly searching for new community, for sweet friends that grow cold and distant, and we can't help but to feel abandoned and confused. Even in our life with God, in our faith, we can get stripped down. Life with God, maybe it used to feel so easy. It used to feel just like so simple, and now it feels like a chore or just some deadweight obligation. We can't seem to find God anywhere, inside of us or outside of us. And the suffering that we feel and that we see in the world, it just makes our faith seem so trite, so insufficient. Maybe you're here this morning and your hope for the church has been stripped down. You've just seen too much division. You've seen too many toxic leaders. Or maybe you just haven't actually found a church community where you actually felt welcomed and known and at home. One way or another, life will strip us down. One way or another, we're going to suffer. And when we do, our temptation is going to be to run and hide. Our temptation when we suffer is going to be to go run and hide. But if we wait with Jesus instead, if we accept his invitation, to embrace his community of the cross, we can learn together how to wait and receive new life. So let's turn together to John 19, verse 23, and your Bibles are bulletins. Let's look at Jesus' word of community from the cross together. Starting in... And for my clothing, they cast lots. The Father Aaron talked a little bit last week about how the Romans intentionally designed crucifixion to be one of the most painful ways of execution. It was painful, not just because of the excruciating physical pain that it inflicted on the body, but in some ways, even more so because of the, the emotional pain and shame that it inflicted on the soul. By stripping Jesus naked and by hanging him up on a cross, he was exposed and he was isolated before everyone who passed by. He was intentionally made to feel powerless and ashamed and alone in the physical pain that was inflicted on him. And part of our suffering and loss is really that it exposes our vulnerability. It exposes our vulnerability and strips off the illusion that we have total control over our lives that we're invincible or that the present this present is permanent and we we tend to work so hard to keep our vulnerabilities covered don't we we work so hard to keep pain and chaos at a distance that when they finally come crashing into our lives and break us open it can actually feel shameful for us i think we've all felt this before it's the shame of having broken expectations and feeling foolish when your ideals aren't met. It's the shame of the emotional instability and the whiplash that we can feel when we're grieving. It's the shame of having our neediness and our weaknesses revealed. And it's the shame of feeling like maybe feeling like we're being pitied by other people. When the shame of suffering comes, we're all going to be tempted to run and to hide. We're going to be tempted to run rather than grieve. Look with me at verse 25. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So, where are the other disciples? Right? Where are Jesus' other disciples? Where are the 12? In Jesus' ultimate moment of loss, as he's stripped naked and he's shamed in front of the whole city, they retreat into hiding. They abandon him. Even though for three years they've been living with him and he's been pouring his life into them 24-7. He called them by name. He taught them. He fed them. He did miracles for them to awaken faith in them. And ultimately he gave them a special view of his glory. And what do they do in this crucial moment of suffering? They overpromise and they underdeliver. They had these big expectations of who he was going to be. They had big expectations and ideals for who they were going to be in his kingdom. If you remember Jesus said to them, do you really think that you can drink the cup of suffering that I'm going to drink? Do you really think that you can be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to suffer? And what did they all say? They all said, "Uh, yeah, we can drink that cup. We can receive your baptism. Absolutely, Jesus, no problem. And then when it comes to this final test of their discipleship, will they actually follow Jesus to the cross? They fail to show up. They run and hide. One of my mentors growing up used to always say, Will, remember, you can fake caring, but you can't fake showing up. You can fake caring, but you can't fake showing up. And in Jesus' ultimate moment of loss and grief, his disciples refused to show up. They refused to show up for him. And it's easy for us to judge them, right? Right? It really is is so easy for us to to judge them for not showing up. But I think that if we were honest with ourselves this morning, maybe even brutally honest, we would be able to see a little bit of ourselves in the disciples and in the decision that they made in this final test. Because all of us are tempted to keep our distance from hurting people. And we're, we're tempted to keep our distance from our own pain and our own suffering as well it's almost, I think, sometimes like we're afraid that the pain is contagious. You know, like, if I get too close to this suffering person, everything's going really well for me right now, and that's somehow going to mess things up, or it's going to be a burden to me. It's going to infect me with their suffering and their problems and their brokenness. And sometimes I think as the, as the sufferer, we can have that same mindset. And so we, we run and we isolate ourselves, because we don't want to be a downer or we don't want to be a burden to other people. We don't want to infect them with our problems. The reality is just that being present to pain can be really exhausting. It can be exhausting to just sit in the presence of someone's pain and listen to them as they describe the loss that they're going through. It doesn't matter whether it's, it's our own or others, it just feels awkward to be in the presence of such vulnerability, and it can feel scary, to not know exactly what to do or to say to make it better. So our temptation is to run. Our own fear and shame, they can keep us from showing up, just like it kept the disciples from showing up in Jesus' ultimate hour of loss. So look with me at the response of these, these other disciples in verse 25. But standing at the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Here are four people, and John's here too, but he did not include himself because he's telling the story. Here are four people, four disciples, who actually chose to wait with Jesus in his ultimate hour of agony and suffering. They decided to show up when everybody else ran away. And each of them, you know, they had such a special relationship with Jesus. They had a unique Jesus story that must have made it so painful for them to stand there and to see him suffering and shamed as he was. I just picture Mary Magdalene, who Jesus came and rescued when others were shaming her and ultimately were going to kill her. And who stepped in and stood up for her, who forgave her her sins and said, Hey, I don't count your sins against you. Imagine how painful it was for her to see Jesus and to feel like she couldn't do anything to help him. Or John, the beloved disciple, who just a day before was reclining at the table with Jesus at the, at the Last Supper with his head on Jesus' chest. Now to see that, that same chest ripped up and bloody, and to feel like there was nothing he could do to heal Jesus' pain. For Jesus' own family, his aunt who knew him since before he was even born and watched him grow up, and his own mother who raised him, who took care of him. And Mary, the wife of Clopas, who we know from the gospel accounts, was someone who had followed Jesus' ministry very closely, who sat under his teaching there was nothing that they could do to help Jesus in his moment of suffering. When the shame of suffering was displayed in full force, they still decided to show up. They still stayed. And ultimately, I think that what we see in their response is that how they grieve with Jesus in his moment of suffering is a reflection of all that they've learned from Jesus by being in his presence for years. How they grieve with Jesus in his moment of suffering is a reflection of all that they've learned from being in Jesus' presence and watching him grieve and wait with other people for years. They watched him weep and wail at Lazarus' grave. They watched him mourn the death of his cousin John the Baptist in retreat to go be with his father in prayer. They heard him cry out and wail with tears as he poured out his heart to the father in prayer, which he did so often we're told in the book of Hebrews throughout his ministry. And John actually saw Jesus in Gethsemane agonized to the point that he was he was sweating blood and yet still was able to pray father, not my will, but your will be done. They saw all of this and they took it in. They weren't at the cross by accident. They learned how to wait with the Lord in their suffering and how to wait with others in their suffering. And they learned it by spending time with Jesus, by watching him do it first. This is why in the final test of discipleship, they're actually able to show up and to wait rather than to run away and hide. And to be honest, waiting is not something that I am naturally very good at. I don't think most of us are naturally very good at waiting, you know, to varying degrees and in different ways. For me, something that I have a really hard time waiting for is the CTA. (laughs) My shadow side just comes out with a vengeance when my uh, CTA tracker app lies to me, which it (laughs) always does. And it says, you know, do now and there's no train. My my temptation in that moment is always to say, you know what, this is stupid. I'm just going to get a lift. You know, it's so much faster. It's cleaner. It's more comfortable. I'm just going to call a lift. And after I got married to my wife, Catherine, when she would be waiting (laughs) by the train with me and I would, see that the CTA Tracker lap app had lied to me again, and I'd say, I'm going to just call an Uber for us, she'd say, Will, in her very love and, and why, loving, wise way, she'd be like, "Well, just wait five more minutes. So I would wait five more minutes. Sometimes we would wait another five minutes after that. <laughs> but eventually, the train would come. And so now, even when I'm at the train by myself after being married to Catherine for four years and I'm lied to and the train isn't there even though it says it's due, and I'm tempted to pull out my phone and get a lift, I can hear Catherine's voice in my head <laughs> saying, well, just five more minutes and so I'll wait five more minutes. And I think that this is what we see here in the life of the disciples. Ultimately, Catherine's voice, that voice that says just five more minutes, it's not natural to me, it's not my gut instinct, but from spending so much time waiting for the train with Catherine and hearing her say it over and over again, from being in her presence so often, that voice found its way into my own heart so that ultimately, even when she is not there, I can hear it just five more minutes. This is what happens when we as disciples over years, over months, intentionally choose to wait with Jesus. When we wait in his presence and spend time in his presence, saturating ourselves in his word, saturating ourselves in the story of his life, watching how he suffered and learning from him, his voice and his character makes its way into our heart by the Holy Spirit. And what happens is that in our own moments of waiting, even when when Jesus and God maybe feel distant, by the Spirit, that voice is there that tells us, just wait five more minutes. Just five more minutes. Even when you're sitting across from someone who's suffering and you feel like you should be there for them more consistently in their life, but you're just wondering, how much is this going to cost me? And Jesus says, just five more minutes when you're waiting for those test results to come back from from the doctor, when you've sent out a dozen applications and haven't heard anything back and you're ready to just drown yourself in anxiety and in despair, the spirit of Jesus comes into our heart and says, just wait with the Lord five more minutes. Find someone you trust, a brother or sister, wait with them five more minutes. In our life with God, when we go through dark nights of the soul, and we can't feel his presence, and in prayer, when we feel like our words are just kind of hitting the wall and falling back down, we're tempted to just do something that feels more productive, over time, as we wait in Jesus' presence, we can hear his voice in our heart saying, just press in for five more minutes in the Lord's presence. Keep bringing that pain to him for five more minutes. Ultimately, the Lord never intended for us to wait on him alone. Look at what Jesus does in verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. I love that John puts this in his account. He wants us to know that Jesus sees his mother's physical needs. He sees that she's going to need covering and someone to take care of her when he's gone. But he also sees her emotional needs. He knows the loss that she suffered as his mother because of the call that the father had on his life. He sees the inward pain that this is causing her. Richard Neuhaus said, the way of the cross is the way of broken hearts. And Jesus knows this. He knew it for Mary. He knows it for each of us this morning. So what does he do? He calls her into community. He says, woman, behold your son. Isn't it interesting? Do you see how by calling her into community, Jesus actually cares for her entire person? He provides someone for her to take care of her physical needs by giving her the covering that she needs, a place to live, someone to take care of her. But he also provides for her emotional needs. He gives her a motherly role again. Even though it's not as his mother, she becomes a spiritual mother in his church. She gets to reclaim that motherly role. She loses a son, but she gains the community of the cross. And John himself gains a spiritual mother. Look with me at how he responds at the end of verse 27. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And this doesn't just mean that he, you know, gave her a place to stay or a place for her to live. This is really a shorthand way of saying that John created a permanent place for Mary in his life. John created a permanent place for Mary in his life. And when Jesus calls us into the community of the cross, what he does is that he creates deep, thick relationships that didn't exist before. Creates deep and thick relationships that didn't exist before. And they almost always come into being through our sharing together in grief and in brokenness. Imagine the gift of grace that Mary was to John and that John was to Mary. I mean, Jesus was raised from the dead and Mary gained back her son in a sense. He gained her eternal life. He gained her the remission of all of her sins. And when he ascended into heaven, he gave her the Holy Spirit but he wasn't around the house anymore, right? He wasn't around the house anymore. She couldn't put her arm around him and kiss him on the head or give him a hug. John is provided for Mary. He's provisioned for Mary, not just because he gives her a home, which which is important, the physical needs are important, but he gives her a companion. He gives her someone that she can do life with someone who can give and create space for her in her time of grief as she grows into this life after her loss. And imagine for John, I just think about what a blessing it was for him to have Mary as a spiritual mother. I think specifically after when he and Peter got beaten in the synagogue, can you imagine him coming home just crying and bloody, and Mary taking him, washing his wounds and binding them up? Imagine her sitting him down and anointing him with oil and praying over him that the Lord would strengthen him under trial so the faith could continue to go forward. There's this beautiful exchange that happens in the community of the cross. There's this beautiful give and gain where both both people are giving, but both people are also receiving. And when we engage in this very vulnerable give and gain, this give and take, what it does is it actually weaves our hearts together. It weaves our hearts and our lives more closely together. And a gift of grace emerges that didn't exist before and wouldn't have existed apart from the loss we suffered. And I, you know, I experienced this firsthand a couple weeks after that terrible first month of my undergraduate career. When, due to a providential Google search, I ended up figuring out about a new church plant called Emmanuel Anglican, and I ended up showing up. And I remember that just as I walked through the doors, even though my faith was truly in shambles, I felt I felt the Lord uh, just give me this sense that this is a spiritual home for you. This is a spiritual home for you, and a place of healing in your grief. And a couple weeks after that, I remember just feeling a very strong urge after the service to take a vulnerable step and go forward and to receive prayer and anointing for my doubts and uh, my, my loss of faith. And I remember I went up to, to Aaron Sanga, who was the prayer minister that day. And just with the care of a spiritual father, he listened to me. He listened to my doubts. He didn't rush to try and provide uh, answers or explanations for the questions that were troubling me. And then he laid his hands on me and he prayed for me. And he anointed me in the name of Jesus. And when I would see him on on all of the Sundays prior, he would come up to me and ask how I was doing. He would check in on me. And I got invited to come to a welcome dinner at the Damiani's and eventually started serving as an usher and then got roped into the scripture reading team got to serve in that way. And that was, you know, it was a lot of fun and something that poured into me and allowed me to just get more deeply connected and woven into the life of the church. This give and take. And now Emmanuel has been a, a spiritual home for my wife, Catherine, and I for over the last seven years. So I want to say that that if you're here today and you're in the throes of loss, don't believe that you don't have a gift of grace to give. Don't believe the lie that that pain and that suffering is contagious and that by sharing it with others, you're just going to burden them and infect them. Believe that in the community of the cross, you actually have a gift of grace to impart, even as you receive from others and lean in to the community. I'd encourage you to let Jesus join you to his community and to (laughs) welcome you into this beautiful exchange this morning. You can go and receive prayer from a prayer minister. You can go and and, and join a city group and have a group of people that you meet with throughout the week who you can share your, your losses and your joys with and be there for them as they bring their losses and their joys to you. And if you're suffering even just from broken expectations and ideals that feel painful, I'd encourage you this morning to just simply bring those to the Father in prayer. Bring those broken ideals, those broken expectations, and say, Jesus, I want to receive the better hope of your gospel, which doesn't disappoint us, even in suffering. Maybe you're here this morning and you know you're not currently in the throes of of loss or grief. I'd encourage you to make space for someone who's grieving in your life. Jesus invites all of us, not just those who are suffering to come into the community of the cross. And we can actually bring the community of the cross wherever we find hurting people, whether that's at church or at work or at home. Maybe asking that coworker who you notice seems down and tends to eat lunch by themselves. Hey, do you want to go out for lunch together? It could be seeking out intentionally a friend who you know is just going through a really rough time and saying, we'd love to have you over for dinner and cooking a great meal for them and just listening to them as they share their their pain and how they're processing. even be just sitting across from someone and allowing them to process without rushing to provide answers or explanations for their suffering. But just patiently listening and even praying for them in your heart as they share their struggles with you. Embrace the awkwardness of not knowing what to do or say and trust that the Lord will help you to be present for them and to show up. The community of the cross is wherever we gather around the Lord's table, wherever we gather around his table proclaiming his death and waiting together for his resurrection. And ultimately what we see all throughout the New Testament is that the community of the cross is a place where miracles happen. These disciples who stayed at the cross they were the first ones to experience the thrill of the empty tomb. They were the first ones to see the risen Christ in all of his beauty. They were the first ones to experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as they gathered together and waited in prayer in the upper room. I believe that we, as we gather together, as we allow Jesus to bring us into the community of the cross, that we're going to experience miracles together and that we already have. That's something Jesus wants for each of us. So we pray even now, come Lord Jesus and come Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.